Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. <clears throat> if any one of you, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrea. We're on the, uh, we're on the home stretch of this series that I thought was just going to be like five or six weeks, and it's been like three or four months. Uh, since Easter, we've been considering really what is the nature of the church. We've been almost going back to the basics in some ways. Uh, we've been doing that uh, kind of through two dovetailed ways. They fit really well together. One is by considering the different places in Scripture, especially the New Testament, where it instructs us how to interact with one another. And so you might call, you might have titled this series, One Another. How do we, uh, how does the gospel, the good news of Jesus, compel us to interact with one another? We've also been doing that by looking through our church covenant, which is a document that we've held as a church since 1840. And in a lot of ways, uh, our covenant is a really robust and rich summary of the New Testament's teaching of how do we treat one another. So we're kind of doing two things at once. And what we've been seeing uh, by emphasizing the one another-ness of the church is that it even helps us to define the church. Just as a point of reminder, we're remembering that the church is not a building. So when you say church, we don't uh, inherently mean a building. Church is not an organization to be managed. So we're not just a a do-good, nonprofit organization. Uh, And church is not an event on, you know, we say, I'm going to church this morning. Uh, The church is more than those things. Now, those are good things. They all serve the church. But they serve the church. The church does not serve them. At its core, the church is a group of people, a family of people, who are committed to God and to one another in the love of Christ. And so as we think about how the New Testament calls us to interact with one another, if at its core the church is a group of people, a family, then we're really considering at its very base level what is the nature of the church. This morning we come to this phrase in our church covenant, it says, we will seek divine aid to enable us to walk circumspectly. How many, uh, any of you use the word circumspectly in the past week? Um, to enable us to walk circumspectly and watchfully in the world, 
denying ungodliness and every worldly lust. Now, that's, a, um, that's probably the weirdest phrase in our church covenant. And I dare say that this is probably one of the, the hardest phrases in our covenant to preach from, partly because the words are words we don't use a lot, and partly because when you really get down to it, the phrase is really broad. You could go any number of places with this. In fact, we already have touched on some of these themes in past weeks. It's also a difficult phrase, though, because in some ways, I think it challenges some of our most deeply held notions in the Western world. Maybe it's not even just a Western thing. Maybe it's a human thing. Here's the notion in our minds that it challenges, namely the notion that you are your own, that I am my own. I'm the captain of my, I'm the captain of my ship. I'm the master of my destiny. In, um, in a 1992 Supreme Court opinion, and I'm not going to tell you the case or the justice, but one of the justices in their opinion wrote this. At the heart of liberty, okay, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, in context, given that case, that's maybe not quite as extreme as it sounds, but what it shows us is that top to bottom, culturally, we are steeped in a culture that says you get to pick what existence and meaning mean. You get to pick how you live your life. You belong to yourself and in effect to nobody else, to which the Bible says you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so even in our church covenant, we affirm the same. This is why this is a challenging, a challenging phrase because when we really get into it, we realize what it's saying that if we will seek divine aid, that means we can't do it on our own, to enable us to walk circumspectly and watchfully in the world, denying ungodliness and every worldly lust, that means there are certain things that we gravitate to that God invites us to leave behind. It counters not only our, our notion that I get to decide what's good and right and just, but also the notion that I, I, me, on my own. And the New Testament is very consistent in this, that our faith is not a lone ranger faith. It's not just you and Tonto, you know, kind of off in the Wild West doing what you want. Our faith is meant to be practiced in community with one another. Now, like I said, we've talked about some of the ways we do this already. Several months ago, we considered what it means to admonish one another. And that admonish basically means to offer a gentle warning when we see someone, one of our Christian brothers and sisters on the wrong track. And even just last week, we reflected on this phrase that we will bear one another's burdens and sorrows. This morning, as we think more specifically, not just about general suffering, but as we really think about sin— We're going to ask, what does it mean to seek God's help in avoiding sin? Which I know sin is a word that kind of raises eyebrows and makes us uncomfortable at at times. And we're going to look at this primarily through the lens of confession. Now, like I said earlier in the service, that confession is not meant to make us feel worse. It's not made to, meant to make us feel kind of like dirt or, oh, it just makes me feel so bad about myself. Uh, if that's all it does, then you're stopping too short. 
Why do I need to confess my sin? Here's why. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. In a sense, this is, this is the whole sermon in one verse. When we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, if someone were to say, like, I'm really not, I'm just not really all that into confession. And if I were feeling especially cheeky, I might ask something like, well, how about forgiveness? Are you into forgiveness? Because you don't get to forgiveness without confession. You don't get to cleaning out the basement without dealing with the mess in the basement. Excuse me, I'm in New England, the cellar. Um, God promises that when we confess, when we confess, you might say whenever we confess, our sin is forgiven. Now, uh, many of you who started coming to Middle Street, especially many of you who've come to Middle Street in the past year or two, have come from other church and Christian traditions where confession is more a part of, of the daily and the weekly life. And so this isn't really that weird for you. Uh, those of you who've been at Middle Street for a long time or who come from a historically, we might say, American Baptist tradition, American, ba- American not as in America, but the denomination called the American Baptist Churches, uh, this is a less common practice in our history. And I dare say that we are impoverished for it that we would do well to learn from our brothers and sisters in other faith traditions and other Christian traditions so that we can know the freedom that comes through confession and so we're not burdened by guilt and by shame all the time. This, by the way, is why we've added confession to our weekly worship services almost every Sunday. Why? Because we need to feel free. We need to feel free. This morning we're thinking more specifically, not about just kind of saying out loud a broad, vague, general confession during a worship service. That's good, and that has its place. But we're really zeroing in on verse 16 of the scripture reading, James 5, verse 16, when James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other, to one another, and pray for one another so that you might be healed. Um. I'm not under any illusions. So um, there's a lot of research, <laughs> a lot of research into sermons, public speaking in general, but even specifically sermons um, that show that one sermon seldom affects broad transformation. So, so I'm not under the illusion that I can preach one sermon for what do we have left? Like 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and say we should confess our sins to each other, and now that'll totally change everything. Maybe one or two people will, will think like, oh, yeah, I really and, and really. My hope is that this is, this is less like a microwave dinner, right? Pop it in the microwave, and in three minutes, it's out fully cooked. My hope is this, is this will be more like planting a tomato seed in your garden. And it takes time. We don't even understand exactly how a seed grows. We just know it does. And it takes water. It takes work. And you gotta... But eventually, over time, over the course of a long season you start to get a tomato that's far and away better than anything you can buy in the store. So if confession hasn't been a part of your practice, I get this is not something that will happen instantly. But let that seed be planted in your soul from the word of God and let it grow and see the kind of fruit that God wants to grow in your soul. Confession is a hard practice 
There's resistance to it. I get that. One of the reasons I think we most don't want to confess is, um, well, one, we're just not used to it. It's not a part of daily life. It's not a part of our tradition for many of us. I wonder if another reason we don't confess, if we're really being honest, we have to peel back some layers here, is we're afraid. We're afraid. And maybe it's that we're afraid of God, but I don't think that's it so much. I, th- I think for a lot of us, I know in some ways this is true for me, we're afraid of what we might see in ourselves. We're afraid of what we might learn about ourselves. Let me point you to one other verse in 1 John, very famous. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. So even as we think about confession, think of it, um, let this, let this kind of overshadow the sermon, that there is no fear in love. And that even if we're afraid of what we might find in ourselves and what that might mean about our relationship with God, Jesus knows you fully. He actually, he knows your sin better than you know it yourself. We were afraid of what we might uncover it. Jesus knows it already and fully loves you. We have nothing to fear. You, you cannot uncover a sin through confession that is so big that will make Jesus turn his back. Do you know that? There is no depth in your soul that is so bad that Jesus might say, you know what? Ah, I'll go, I'm going to go over here to the other room. (laughs) Because for those who are in Christ, Jesus has forgiven your sin, past tense. That's what he accomplished on the cross. And if Jesus himself, if God himself fully knows you better than you know yourself and deeply loves you more deeply than you dare hope, then what could we possibly have to fear? Therefore, James says, confess your sin to one another. Confess your sin to one another. Let's get a little bit into the, not into the weeds, I don't want to say, but let's, let's get a little more specific and ask, what is confession about? It's not about making you feel like you don't measure up. It's about the opposite. It's actually about building you up. What I want to do, the way we we want to look at it this morning is to look at kind of three results that happen through confession. What does confession do in our soul, in our relationships with one another, and in our relationship with God? So kind of internally, then horizontally, you might say, and then vertically. The first thing that happens in confession is this. It is an absolute wrecking ball to our pride. Because when we confess, you can't confess without coming to grips with the fact that there is sin involved. There's something that needs to be confessed. And remember, we're specifically talking about confessing to one another. We'll touch on this a little bit later, but let me just say, I'm not suggesting that at the end of the service, you just find a stranger and start dumping on them all of your sin. Don't do that. (laughs) They probably don't want to hear it right now. They don't know you. This is not something, this is probably something, in fact, as you're thinking, you you might think, like, who is the one or maybe two people in my life that I really trust deeply with this? We're not talking about this being a very broad, this is very narrow and very specific. 
But even in that context, confession is a wrecking ball to our pride and to our shame. We don't want to believe that we stand in need of grace. We want to think, okay, if I just work hard enough at this thing, I can get over it. I can get past it. Okay, I tripped up there. I just need to keep a better eye out and I can get past this thing. When I confess a specific sin to you, man, I, I really lost my temper with my kids the other day. And they didn't do it, anything to deserve it. They were, they were just being, being kids. Um, it's, even when I think about it, it's not really their fault. It's just, it's just kids being kids. But man, I just, it had been a long day and, and I just lost it. That forces me to realize that parts of me are still broken. Confession, and specifically confession to another person, is really difficult because it forces us to reopen that wound. It's risky. I'm going to quote a fair amount, like two or three quotes this morning from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote this, this brilliant little book, like 100 pages, called Life Together, and I'm drawing a lot from that book this morning as well. But here's what he says about specifically confessing, not just in your personal private prayer time to God, but to one another. He says, why is it that it is often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother or sister? Perhaps, he writes, we have often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God and in fact have actually been confessing our sins to ourselves instead of God. And therefore, we have been granting ourselves absolution. That's another word for forgiveness. And could it be that perhaps our countless relapses and the feebleness of our Christian obedience is found precisely in the fact that we are living on self-forgiveness and not real forgiveness? Now, this is not to say we shouldn't confess our sin in our daily and our private prayer with God. We should. But it's so easy in that to just kind of give a quick, forgive me my sins, God, and maybe I lost my cool, but I don't really have to deal with that, and I can move right along. And then I say I did the work, but it's not really cleaned out. When I confess to somebody else, now I'm opening myself to more risk. How will that person respond? This, by the way, is why the person you confess to, it's got to be somebody whom you know drinks deeply from the wells of grace, who's experienced the grace of Jesus in their life, because that means they're going to point you to the grace of Jesus and not shame you. But you're still risking, what will that person think? What will they say? And if they're good, they might ask some questions about that. What was going on? But the deeper you can dig, the deeper you can be healed. The deeper we can dig, the deeper we can be healed. So confession to one another is a wrecking ball to our pride and to our shame. Secondly, when we confess, there's a horizontal aspect that happens. Namely, we grow in intimacy with one another. This is why there there are four or five other places in the New Testament that talk about confessing and forgiving one another. Because it's not only about me opening myself to risk, but now when my brother, when, that, when I go and confess something to a close friend and I hear him say, Chris, you sinned. Do you trust Christ? And I say, yeah, I think so, as, as best as I know how. And he says, your sin is forgiven. 
Now it has knit us closer together. Um, one of my favorite commentators on James is a, a woman. She's a professor at a seminary in Canada. Uh, I'm especially partial to her because she went to Davidson College, which is where I did my undergrad uh, as well. But she wrote this brilliant commentary on James. And she says, we ought to have people close enough to us whom we allow to inquire into our spiritual state. Do we have relationships close enough that somebody dares ask? Uh, there's an old kind of classic Methodist formulation. How is it with your soul? Or if you want to, um, that's, that's John Charles Wesley. That's several hundred years ago. Kind of the more updated way of, of thinking about this is through, so I just discovered um, a podcast. It's a, he's a psychiatrist and an interpersonal neurobiologist. Imagine that for your job title. His name is Kurt Thompson. He's a Christian. And so I had to look up, like, what is interpersonal neurobiology? It, it, it explores the intersection between your neurobiology, so your brain chemistry, and your interpersonal relationships. And what's amazing, and, and so there's like four or five seasons, um, I really recommend it. Our brain affects our relationships. That's no, we would probably understand. So your, your brain chemistry affects your relationships with people. But your relationships with people affect your brain chemistry as well. Like at a physiological level, did you know this? I didn't. But I'm listening to this thing with Kurt Thompson. So he's a medical doctor. He's a psychiatrist. And he said this is um, when we experience forgiveness. So when I confess my sin to somebody else and my brother says, I forgive you and God forgives you because the grace of Jesus has covered your sin— I don't know how they do this, but actually the synapses in your brain that make certain social connections get thicker by like a nanometer, right? So we can't, but there's actually a biochemical response in our brain that occurs when there has been a rupture and then a healing in a relationship. And we see this specifically with forgiveness. So this is the neurobiological equivalent of breaking your leg, you know, that's the old saying, we all, hopefully you haven't experienced this, some of you have, but you break a bone and when it heals back, it heals back stronger. We know this, right? Wouldn't you know that that's not just true of your femur, that's true of the synapses in your brain. That, that when there, so, so what is sin, but it's a rupture in a relationship, either with somebody else or with God. And then when that rupture turns into repair through forgiveness, the synapses and the part of your brain that, I don't know, get thicker. They get stronger. The relationship at a neurobiological level gets stronger. Isn't it amazing how God, like, makes our brains to work in these ways? Now, if you're not really a science person, then, so Kurt Thompson, the psychiatrist, goes on to explain it at a, at a kind of a social level. Let me just read this for you. This is, um, I found this very helpful. So he says, it's risky for me to share something. He's talking about confession here. It's risky for me to share something that is potentially shaming for me. I've kept it buried because there's too much shame wrapped around it. But when I share it with you, suddenly I'm no longer holding this by myself. And now I see you listening to this part of my story that I really hate. And you don't get up and leave that changes me. This is a long quote, but hang with me because he continues. So he says, before I shared this with you, I believed that I should be ashamed. I should keep this under wraps. I shouldn't talk about this. 
But when I do share it, and when you listen graciously, you allow me to be known. And therefore, you allow me to live my story more truly. When you listen graciously, last paragraph, when you listen graciously without shaming me for the thing I think I should be ashamed of, when you listen to me graciously without shaming me for the thing I think I should be ashamed of, my shame is transformed by being known by you. And now I have more energy to be creative and to be fully human because I'm no longer spending my energy on keeping that part of my story hidden and buried, all because you enabled me to tell my story more truly. You see, we spend so much energy just on trying to hide the parts of ourselves that we don't want anybody else to find out about. I'm not suggesting you go shout these things from the rooftops, but do you have a trusted friend who you trust deeply enough to fully know. Maybe you don't start at 100%, right? Maybe you just just start at 5% with whom you can share and confess those things that you're most afraid that somebody else might find out about. Somebody who you can trust to hear those things and to not get up and leave. Why? Because that sets you free. This is not about guilt. This is about freedom, you see? Through confession, we no longer have to waste energy trying to be a version of ourselves that we aren't. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, he puts it slightly differently, and he's talking about the culture. And again, we're we're really talking specifically about, I mean, this is true broadly, but specifically in a church family. He riffs a little bit on what he calls the pious fellowship. So that's a group of people who are very concerned with appearances. It's churches where, right, you don't show anything, but everything is good and holy and righteous. He says, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and therefore from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real Christ, or excuse me, when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. And so we remain alone in our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. That's exhausting, isn't it? Here's the reality. Jesus knows you. He knows. And he didn't get up and leave. And when we are allowed the opportunity to know one another, and when we don't get up and leave, and when we don't shame one another, but when we point one another to the truths and the good news of Jesus' forgiveness, when we assure one another that we're forgiven, we, in effect, we we set one another free. Is there just one person even, I wonder? Is there just one person whom you can trust with something like that? When we confess our sin, it's a wrecking ball to our own pride and our shame. So that's what's going on internal. Horizontally, what happens, it draws us closer to one another. Vertically, we realize 
we're forgiven. We're forgiven. Now, I don't want this to be formulaic, but, but what happens in effect, ideally, when confession happens, one person says, I, I really, I lost it, I lost my temper, or I, whatever. And the other person listens and says, man, that's tough. And maybe they say something like, I've been there. And they might say something like, don't dwell on this. And they might say something like, I, I really appreciate the courage that it took for you to share that. Thanks for trusting me with that. Let me just remind you, and I know you know this, but let me just remind you of what you already know. You're not defined by your mistakes. You're not defined by your sin. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by your shame. You're not defined by your anxiety. You're defined by the fact that Jesus has set you free. You see, we need to hear out loud, verbally, your sin is forgiven. I mean, you, you need to hear this. We all need to hear this. You can say like, well, I know it. I don't need to, do I really need to go through that just to, just to hear it and all that effort? You can say, I, I know it. But that's really not that different from a husband saying, I don't need to tell my wife that I love her. Like, she knows I love her. Wives, amen? No. Husbands, you need to tell your wife you love her and she needs to hear it out loud verbally. Why? There's something about words that changes us. There's something about words that changes us. I just, I just thought, of, I've used this illustration before. Um, uh, I think it's Wendell Berry. I'm going to, I forget the reference, but Wendell Berry writes about, um, you, you tell a woman she's beautiful and like she, it changes. She walks differently. She carries herself differently. You see, there's something about words, powerful words that change us. And so when we confess our sins to our brothers and sisters, when our brothers and sisters confess their sins to us and we say, walk in freedom, your sin is forgiven. This does not define you. It changes us. It changes us. This is why the appropriate response is, your sin is forgiven. The appropriate response is not, well, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Because we, we know it's not okay. For, forgiveness is not saying, well, it's okay. That just kind of sweeps the problem under the rug and pretends like it doesn't exist. It doesn't do anything to actually heal. It doesn't resolve a problem. It doesn't repair the rupture. Forgiveness means that something wrong actually happened, like wrong was done. And you can call it wrong or brokenness or sin. or like It doesn't matter what you call it in some sense. Something wrong happened. And the person who is forgiving has resolved not to hold that wrong against you. Like, there's actual pain there. Okay, so switch perspectives. You're the, imagine somebody wrongs you. They say something deeply hurtful to you. If your response is, well, it's okay, like, you know, and the other person probably knows, it's actually not okay. And pretending like the hurt didn't happen doesn't heal the hurt. There is a wide gulf between saying it's okay and saying I forgive you. I forgive you means, yeah, that hurt. That takes risk and vulnerability, even just to admit that, that I'm able to be hurt. <laughs> we don't want to admit that we can be hurt, that we do bleed. I forgive you means, yeah, you hurt me. And because you hurt me, I have a right to, in a sense, get back. 
I have a right to justice. I have a right to some sort of payment in exchange for the wrong that you did for me, but I'm waiving that right. I'm setting it aside. And instead of making you hurt because you hurt me, I'm absorbing the hurt because I care more about our relationship than I care about my rights. Forgiveness says I care more about our relationship than I care about my rights. When we say Jesus Christ forgives us, what's he saying? He's saying your sin hurt. He doesn't sweep it under the rug and pretend like like our brokenness and our sin hasn't hurt. Our brokenness and our sin are why Jesus had to come in the first place. And it hurt. Believe me, the cross hurt. But what happens in forgiveness? In forgiveness, we say, I have a right to payment, but I'm setting aside that right because I care more about the relationship than I care about my rights. On the cross... On the cross, Jesus set aside his rights and he said, I care more about my relationship. I care more about love. I love you enough to set aside my right to demand payment in exchange for this hurt that you've inflicted on me. Just out of love. What does he say? He says, I forgive you. I forgive you. Words change people. Remember? When you say things out loud, it changes the person you talk to. Why would would it be any less true that when we encounter the Word of God himself, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, and we hear through him the Word of God that says you are not defined by your shame and your sin, but I love you deeply, so deeply that I'm willing to set aside my right to repayment because I love you and you are forgiven. It changes us. You see? We can't, we can't remain the same. You cannot be truly forgiven and not be changed. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, when we confess our, 1 John 1, 9, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we act that out with one another, when I confess my sin to you and you say, Chris, your sin is forgiven, what is happening? You are becoming like a tangible, living, breathing, bleeding example of Christ in my life. So it knits us closer to one another and it knits us closer to Christ. All because we dared to be known. All because we dared to be known.